You can open up your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians once again. Trying to forge our way through this. 2 Thessalonians. And once again, we're focusing on verses 6 through 10. We've talked in the past several weeks about the second coming of Christ and what that means in so many different ways, the joys and the sorrows of His coming. And we've talked, uh, first of all, about the vengeance of the Lord. He talks about, verse 8, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the message today, we're going to talk a little bit about the relief uh, that he is going to give us at his second coming for those that know Christ. And um, uh, there's these purposes for his return And we've looked so far, basically, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will deal out eternal punishment to unbelievers, but share his eternal glory with his saints. And we've looked at point one, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in a mighty display of power and glory. And we went over that in depth, and we talked about what this is. It's the vengeance of the Lord. It's divine vengeance. And why is it? Because the word says there in verse 6, God considers it just to carry out this judgment. That's all we need. Um, We can't go beyond that because God is holy. He would never do anything that's unjust. And we talked about what it is. It's full punishment. And we talked about why this is going to take place. It's because of the fallen nature of our sin. And um, today we want to look at who this is going to affect, who this judgment is going to affect. We started this last week. Point two, when Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will deal out eternal punishment to unbelievers. And it says there in in verse six, he will repay with affliction those who afflict you. Remember, this small church was going through a lot of persecution, a lot of hardship, and they were enduring it as saints in Christ. Um, And he commends them for that. But at the same time, he wants to encourage them But here he points out that this judgment of God on unbelievers is basically in two groups here. It says those who do not know God and also those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we looked a little bit last week about those who do not know God. We referred to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know what? They may know you, he prays, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you've sent, this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so, if eternal life comes to those who know God through his Son, you have to ask the question, what happens to those who don't? And this is where this eternal destruction comes in to play, this judgment of God. And uh, he points out here in in verse 2, uh, that in verse 6 there, um, when it's, it's, it's coming, he says he's going to repay, repay those with affliction, those who afflict you. And, and these are people who do not know God, and they do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some commentators say, well, this could, one could refer to Jews, and the other one referred to Gentiles. Uh, you could draw that conclusion. Um, after all, the Jews did have the revelation of God. God gave them the Old Testament. He gave them the revelation about God. But guess what? They didn't know God. Even though they had all the information, they, they didn't put it together. Um, there were Jews who had this revelation, but they rejected it. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 says, Hear the word of the Lord, O Israel. Children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants in the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And then he says this, and no knowledge of God in the land. No knowledge of God in the land. He's talking about his people. In, in Hosea chapter 4 verse uh, 6, he says, my people are destroyed for what? Lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. Wow. It's important to know God. It's important to know the God who created you.
In John chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus says, as he was teaching in the temple, you know me and you know where I came from. I have not come from my own accord. Of my own accord, he who sent me is true. And then he says this, and him you do not know. So he points out very clearly that there's an importance in knowing God. Uh, Gentiles don't know God. Some of them don't even know about God. Some of them never even heard his name. That's why we have missionaries. That's why we send out the word of God around the world. Because it's our job to fulfill that great commission that Kai spoke about. Jews, on the other hand, they know about God because of their heritage, because of their upbringing. But guess what? They don't know God either. In the truest sense of the word. They know about God, but they don't know God. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul really indicts those who did not know God in verse 8. He indicts them. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's really an indictment of those who are without God, it says, in the world. You're in the world that God created, but you don't know God. That's where these folks are. And Titus points out in verse 16 of chapter 1, those who profess to know God, we all know people who profess to know God, right? They're religious. They're, they're, they have all the, the trappings of religion. They have all everything that makes them look like they know God. <clears throat> but verse 16 says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Interesting. Being detestable, disobedient, and worthless. Those are hard words. It's a, it's, a, it's a horrible situation to be in if you're sitting here this morning and you do not know God, the God who created you, the God that provided a way of salvation, a way out from the burden that you bear with your sin. That doesn't come by knowing about God. As a matter of fact, you can know a lot of things about God and still be damned to hell. So there were Gentiles who didn't even know about God at all, knowing anything about him. And they rejected the path to God through reason and through the moral law. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair if God... It's going to hold them accountable, and they don't even know about God. The Bible tells us that there is a hell for those who don't even know about God. And guess what? We can't say it's not fair, because God is just, once again. And there's also a hell for those who, knowing about God, don't know God. That's what Matthew 7 speaks of, right? When, when Jesus says, Hey, there's going to be people that come before me and say, Lord, Lord. We've done this. We've done that in your name. We've healed people. We've fed the poor. We've done all this stuff. And what does Jesus respond to them? He says, depart from you. I never, what? I never knew you. So it's very important that you are known by God. And and God loves us so much that he gave us the opportunity to know him. But even beyond that, there's a greater guilt that's implied. There's a greater guilt of just not knowing God, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Look at what it says in verse 8 of 2 Thessalonians. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who what do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 2... Verse 12, it's referred to as those, um, as in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. See, when you're presented with the gospel, granted, there is a hell for people who didn't even know about the gospel, because none of us are guilty. All of the human race deserves hell because we're not righteous in our own standing before a holy God. 
But the Bible seems to indicate that there's an intensified guilt on those who have been exposed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but have shunned it aside. Look over at Hebrews chapter 10 with me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse uh, verse 26. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. And this indicates that there's a most severe kind of suffering to those who know the gospel and reject the gospel. Look at what it says in verse 26 of Hebrews 10. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, willfully, you could say, even though we know the word tells us not to, we just continue to do it after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And the sin there is the sin of unbelief. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. A lot of people read this and say, well, that means you must be able to lose your salvation. Can you lose your salvation, Pastor? No, you can't. It's not talking about that. It's talking about people who have been exposed to the truth. They received the truth. They, they heard the truth. And guess what? If you go on deliberately disobeying the truth, there's no other path for you. If you're not coming through the truth, there's no back door you're going to slip into heaven. There's only one way. There's only one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 28, a little further down, listen to this. He says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. On the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse, look at what it says in verse 29. How much worse punishment. In other words, it gives us a clear indication here in Hebrews 20, 10, 28. That there is obviously degrees of punishment in hell. Now, Trust me, all hell is going to be bad. But for some, it will be really, really, really bad. Well, who, who is that? It says, do you think um, uh, will, be deser- will, be de- will be deserved by the one who has temp- trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? What's he talking about? He's talking about the... the the very thing we're celebrating this morning through communion, the death of Christ on the cross. By which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. So if you reject the law of Moses, what Hebrews is telling you is you die without mercy. But there's a much severe punishment if you trample under feet the Son of God. If you look at what Jesus Christ did for you in giving his life as a ransom on the cross and you laugh at it and you mock it and you don't obey the gospel, but you hear it, you understand there's a way of salvation through the cross, but you're willfully saying, I'm not going to go there. The punishment in hell will definitely be ratcheted up for those people. In verse 30 it says, For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And he will repay equal to the crime, because he's a just God. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then look at what it says in verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It means it's terrifying. Beyond terrifying. Horrifying. Remember what the gospel is. The gospel, I mean, salvation is something that we receive as a gift, is it not? But the gospel is a command that we are called to obey. See, a lot of people don't understand half of that. They say they want to receive the gift of salvation, but they don't obey the gospel. It's not just something that we believe. You know, we hear that all the time. 
How do you get saved? Just believe the gospel. Well, so much more than that. I mean, it does mean that. You do have to believe it. But you have to believe it in such a way you understand it's not just a story. It's not something you're just abstractly believing that, oh, yeah, Jesus gave his son, I know. John 3.16, I see it on all the billboards. It's the ball games, or you used to anyway. I don't see it very much anymore, to be honest. <laughs> Romans 1, Romans 10, Romans 15, over and over and over again. Romans 16, Paul talks about salvation as something that means obedience of the faith. Our salvation involves more than just belief. It, it it involves obedience. And so you have this first group that he talks about this vengeance coming against as being persecutors of the truth. Those who know the truth, know about God. Maybe they even know what the Bible says. Maybe they even know the gospel. And maybe they even believe the gospel but they fail in obeying the gospel because they're actually persecuting those who are being saved by the gospel. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 12 when when Abraham, uh, God was speaking to Abraham about his future people and he tells them this about Israel. He says, whoever blesses you will be what? Blessed, right? And whoever curses you will be cursed. That's just part of our human history. See, it's one thing, beloved, to reject God. That's one level of rejection. And people will be punished for that. It's another level of a person's rejection to actually reject the gospel. To have an understanding, well, yeah, I understand that Jesus came as a result of God's gift to us, a gift of love, a gift of grace. God provided a way out of our sinful situation. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've, We've all been in that situation. And God says, I don't want you to be there. I'm going to send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come to earth. He's going to live for 30 some years, a perfect life. And then he's going to give up his life. Nobody's going to take it from him. He's going to give it up willingly in a cruel physical death, but even a more cruel spiritual death. I mean, picture this. The Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. He's never committed any wrongdoing at all in deed or thought, action. He's lived a perfect life. And there he is, arms outstretched, nailed to a cross, bloody, beaten, And we look at that and we say, oh, poor Jesus, that must have really hurt. Physically, yes, but even more so spiritually. Because you're not talking about a man. You're talking about a God-man. You're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And the Bible tells us when he hung there on that cross, guess what happened? The father couldn't even look. He had to turn away from his own son. How that happens theologically, I don't understand. Because God is one. See, it's one thing to reject God. It's something else to reject the gospel, to reject the idea that Jesus, that God through Jesus gave us a free gift, a free passage. And over and over, Jesus commanded commanded us really to follow him. To, to go through that door, to take that step of faith, to recognize your need of a Savior. And for those that turn to the Savior, broken, and beside themselves, they turn to the Savior, and Lord, be gracious to me, a sinner. Save me. Guess what? God saves them. The step of faith. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what your history is. You have, may have lived a very blessed life. You may have lived a horrible, horrible life and endured many 
misjustices and all kinds of things in your life. But you know what? All I can tell you is that God is there for you in the person of Jesus Christ. He understands exactly what you've gone through or what you are going through. And he calls you, hey, bring this burden to me. Bring it to the cross. I will bear it for you. Believe in what I did on Calvary for you. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he, what, gave. He gave us the opportunity for salvation. And to reject that, that's amping it up. The degrees of punishment will go up. Some people don't ever even heard about the cross. They're still going to end up in hell one day. And it can't be unjust, it can't be unfair, because God is completely fair. He's completely just in everything he does. Because he's a perfect holy God. But when he gives us a gift and you turn your back on the gift, well, the degrees of punishment in hell will go up for that person. But there's even a greater crime than rejecting the gospel. And that's the persecution of those who are saved by the gospel. And such justice is right. They've endured persecution, these Thessalonians. He talks about the perseverance and the faith in the midst of all these persecutions and afflictions which you endure, Paul tells him in verse 4. And it's only right, it's only just that God repay And he starts with repaying those who afflict his children. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, because one of my little ones, if you cause one of my little ones to stumble, you'd be better off if a millstone were hanged around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. See, those non-Christians who are persecuting Christians today in the world, we look at that and we say, what a horrible thing. And it is a horrible thing. But one day, God's justice is coming. God's justice will fall on them. They don't understand that. They've suppressed the truth, Romans 1.18 says. Paul tells us in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 20, that God has clearly revealed himself through his invisible attributes, his eternal power, through the divine nature, through his creation. Verse 21 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So people who do not know God are guilty. They don't know God because of the hardness of their own hearts. Ephesians 4.18, Paul says, they are darkened in their understanding. understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, it says in verse 19, and have given themselves over to sensuality, to greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. These are people who do not know God. And because they love their sin, such willful, ignorant people who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as indicated there in verse 8, they will receive just punishment. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus preached this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is what? At hand. And then he says this, repent. Change your mind about this gift that God has offered you. Repent and believe in the gospel. See, this isn't a helpful hint. This isn't something you just add to your life. This is a command. This is something you commit yourself to. In Acts chapter 17, Paul was telling the Athenian philosophers there, he says, therefore, having overlooked, in verse 30, the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should what? Should repent. Change your mind about who Christ is. Change your mind about the gift that God has offered to us in salvation through Christ. And he tells us why. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, 
Christ, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See, to repent and to believe the gospel is to obey the gospel. It's not good enough just to believe it. Because it's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you say you believe in the gospel, you're basically saying, I'm, I'm willing to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. There's people today who say, well, no, you, you can just get saved. You don't have to have Jesus as Lord of your life. That's not that important. Just come to him as your savior. Just embrace him as your savior. Don't worry about this lordship stuff. Well, either he is Savior and Lord, or he's nothing. You can't have it both ways. You can't come to Christ and say, yeah, God, give me the salvation you offer through Jesus, but I'm just going to continue to live my life the way I want to live it. Even though I read in your word the things that I do are completely wrong, and you command me not to do them, I'm just going to continue to do it, because after all, Jesus died for my sins, right? See, that's a cheap salvation, beloved. That's a, that's a salvation. It's not biblical. And Jesus really said that. When his disciples were following him, did he not? I mean, he laid down the gauntlet. He didn't do a bait and switch. He didn't say, hey, I'm promising you all this, you know, forgiveness and love and just let's go dance through the the roses, you know, and it'd be happy, happy, happy. Just follow me. No. He said the only way you could ever follow me is what? You deny yourself. You die to yourself. You take up your cross daily. Then you can follow me. Well, that sounds kind of harsh. It is. That's the whole point. In other words, if you're not willing to forsake all and follow Christ, you're not willing to follow Christ. Don't call yourselves a, a Christ follower. Don't call yourself a believer and then go out in the world and, and live like a non-believer. You're, you're, you're just building up more judgment on your soul. John 3.36 basically tells us that believing in Jesus is obeying Jesus. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. And then the very next phrase he says, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Do you get the connection? You can't say, I believe in Jesus and not obey him and not obey his word. As a matter of fact, he even says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I mean, I can't even handle it when my wife is mad at me for a couple days. I don't even want to think about the wrath of God abiding on my soul. Wow. And not just for a period of time, for all of eternity. Wrap your mind around that. See, if someone claims to believe in Jesus as Savior, but he isn't submitting to Jesus as Lord, the claim is very questionable. So we have those who do not obey God, those who do not, or do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel. See here, it says, unbelievers will suffer terrifying, irreversible eternal affliction and punishment when Christ is revealed. This is kind of the how. How does this take place? How does this come, come down? Verse 6 simply says, He will repay with affliction those who afflict you. These are unbelievers who are persecuting Christians. And this is what I was reminding you of the severity of judgment. On those who never heard the name of God, there's also a severity of judgment. It's amped up a little bit for those who have heard the name of God. They've heard the gospel. They reject it. But there's even a more severe punishment in hell for those who rejected the gospel. And yet now they, they, they do a, a frontal assault on the gospel, on believers. They're persecuting Christians. Verse 9 tells us very clearly what their penalty will be. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction is just that, forever. It's forever. It doesn't mean your soul sleeps and doesn't mean annihilation. Because whatever it is, it means it goes on forever. 
You don't go out of existence when you die. It lasts forever. The, the Greek term here is used 75 times in the New Testament, and it always means eternal, always. It's used in Romans 16.26. It's used of God. It says that he is eternal, same word. It's used of eternal life when John says in John 3.16, talks about eternal life. It's that word eternal. In Hebrews 5.9, it's used of eternal salvation. It's used of eternal redemption in Hebrews 9.12. You can go on and on and on, do your own word study. It means eternal. It doesn't mean anything else. It is eternal destruction. Olathros in the, in the original language, and it, it means to bring to ruin, eternal ruin, it's not a temporary ruin. It speaks of a ruined life. It's kind of a conscious recognition of a ruined life. A way to understand it, one commentator says, not that time passes, not that hours go by, weeks go by, years go by, millenniums go by. It is simply a moment that never ends. One moment of grief that never, ever, ever ends. One moment that never stops. A most horrific moment. He says like the final stages maybe of a cancer patient. Only you never die. You just experience the pain, the uselessness, the hopelessness, the emptiness, the meaninglessness, the valuelessness. No purpose, no goal, no future, no hope. I mean, our Lord himself had some horrifying things to say about this place called hell, this punishment that is awaiting those who reject the gospel, who persecute those who trust in the gospel. It speaks of the weeping and grinding of teeth. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 to 17, he says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich, he's speaking of Christ's return, and the strong and every slave and free men hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of whom him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who will be able to stand? Rhetorical question. Answer, no one. No one will stand on that day. See, this tells us that hell is not going to be some wild, eternal party with your friends, as the world portrays it to be. All the language of the Bible indicate, Bible indicate that hell will be an awful, eternal, conscious torment. He spoke of the rich man in Luke 16, verse 24. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. He said, for I am in agony in the flame. In Mark 9, 48, Jesus referred to hell as where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I mean, you can do your own study on hell. And you may ask, well, what are the flames going to be, be like in hell? What's it going to be like? I don't know. I can't even comprehend it. I just know I don't want to go there. I do not want to find out. And I don't want loved ones to find out. Because the language Jesus used to describe this place is horrifying. Matthew 25, 46, it says, these will go away into eternal, there's that word eternal, punishment. But the righteous go to eternal life. See, that's the option we have. A life of etern eternal hell or a life in eternal heaven. That's the decision that is before us, the choice that God sets before us. If eternal life lasts forever, then Guess what? Eternal punishment will last forever. And so he's coming 
for this just reason to repay those with wrath that they deserve. But there's also good news here. It's finally, it's finally, we've had weeks and weeks of this hell and wrath and that's sorry, but that's where the Lord took me. Point three, when Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will share his eternal glory with his saints. See, if you're here today and you, you have put your faith, your trust, you've trusted in Christ's sacrifice for your sins on the cross, this is not part of your future. You will not be under the wrath of God. You don't have to worry about his pending wrath, his pending judgment. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ took that wrath for you. The Bible clearly teaches that. And this is the rest, this is the relief, this is the joy, if you will, that comes at his coming. In verse 7, it tells us, and he's coming not only to Repay with affliction those who afflict you. But he says in verse 7, to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well. I love this little phrase he puts in, as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Remember, the Thessalonians were enduring incredible persecution as a young church. And Paul is saying, hey, you know what? He's coming back, and he will grant you relief. This, This period of time in which you're suffering right now will be worth it in the end. We have to believe that by faith. And notice he says here that he will, in verse verse 10... He says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. Not with his saints, in his saints. The literal glory of Christ will be fully revealed in our glorified state. Right now we get a small picture of it through the church and through our own salvation. But we're held back by this body we live in and this fallen world we live in. But there will be a day when we will fully comprehend the full glory of God. In Colossians 3, 4, Paul says this, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, listen to this, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I mean, I can't wrap my mind around that. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 3, 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever. And amen. See, because we're kind of like Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. Paul says this to the Corinthian church. Remember, the Corinthian church, we went through that. We, they were dealing with a lot of issues. They weren't like the Thessalonian church. They had major problems. And Paul wrote this of them in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For even when we came into Macedonia, listen to what he says, our bodies had no rest. Zero. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. See, I think we can relate to Paul. We understand what it means to live a life in trouble, to have a life that's constant, filled with trials and tribulations. Maybe you have brief moments of rest here and there, But we understand what it means to live a life of toil here on this earth. And what what 2 Thessalonians, Paul is communicating to us is that, you know what? There will come a time when we will enter into our true salvation rest. Hebrews makes it clear we have not entered into the eternal rest yet. We haven't entered into that eternal relief yet. But that comfort is coming. It's a relief from affliction. It's a relief from those who afflict us. It's it's really the end of all persecution, you could say. Whenever I bring up persecution of Christians, inevitably after the service or sometime in the following week, I'll have believers say, you know what, I don't know what's wrong with you because I'm not enduring any persecution from anybody. 
And I always point them to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. And they're almost saying in ignorance. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Will suffer persecution. It's not even an option. So I pose the question, how godly of life are you living? I mean, if you're just blending in with the world every week and you're not standing out, you're not being that peculiar person that the New Testament calls us to be in this world, that we should stand out, that we are called out of the world. We're we're still in the world. We still have the responsibility of sharing the gospel with those who have yet to hear. But we should be distinct from the world. And not just, by the way, by our lives. I mean, that's one way, but also by our message. See, the church today has unfortunately dumbed down the whole evangelism thing to the point, well, well, I just don't say anything. I just live for Jesus. Well, that's great. But you're only fulfilling half of your commission. That's just as bad as going out and living like the devil and yet proclaiming you're a Christian. You're only doing half of it. We need to obey the full commission. We need to live lives that are exemplary of Christ, and we're not going to do that perfectly. None of us can. But we can definitely try a little bit harder in the lifestyle area as well as what comes out of our mouths. Well, you don't understand. I'm just a very shy person. I I could never share the gospel with them. Then you better pray God gets you over your shyness. Because you're living in disobedience to what God has told you to do. And that's not an excuse. I'm a very shy individual. But you know what? God has given me the grace to overcome that shyness on a Sunday morning for 90 minutes. I would never choose to do this. God will help you with that. And so he wants us to understand here, really, that this rest is coming. And how do you define that rest? Well, he's already told us back in verse 15 of, of uh, 1 Thessalonians when he's talking about the snatching away of the church, is he not? Be comforted, your rest is coming. You're, you're, you're going to be caught up as a believer out of this sin-stained world one day. Christ is coming back and he is going to violently snatch away his church. That's the next prophetic event on the end times calendar. Is the time when Christ will return in the air, not to the ground. He's not coming to earth. He's coming in the clouds, the Bible says. And he promises in verse uh, or John 14 that he is going away And I'm going away to make a room for you, a place for you in my father's house. And he says this, I am going to come and I'm going to get you. And I'm going to take you to be with me. That is the snatching away of the church. And we've talked about that. On earth, while we're snatched away into heaven, what's going to be playing out here on earth? Well, there's going to be, in heaven, we're having the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Receiving our rewards, being rewarded for our faithfulness to the Lord, but on earth, that's when judgment begins. The Bible speaks of a time of uh, tribulation, seven years, and the work of Satan will come to this world in the most destructive ways ever seen. And during that period, this tribulation period, this seven-year period, it says the gospel will even be preached then. And it tells us that because Jews will be saved. 144,000 of them, 12,000 from every tribe. And guess what God is going to do? He's going to turn them into a missionary force the world has never seen before. And they're going to be unleashed on the unbelieving world with the gospel of Christ. And they're going to begin to preach the gospel around the world. And Revelation 11 tells us that there will be two witnesses who preach the gospel. And the gospel will be preached by an angel flying in the sky, it even tells us. The gospel will spread across the world, and every tongue, every nation will hear the gospel. And many will be converted. 
There's going to be huge numbers of conversions during this tribulation period. Probably the greatest revival the world has ever seen. And by the way, some of you have asked me about this revival at Ashbury College and Seminary. We have to be very careful what we call a revival. In the Bible, a revival was always something that was never planned. See, and even in, in Baptist denomination, oh, we're having a revival meeting. Put up the tent, right? That's what we think. And I get it, it's semantics. But biblically, what is a revival? A revival is a spontaneous movement of God where through the teaching of God's word, the preaching of God's word, many are converted and saved. It's not the church getting together and singing hymns and songs. So we have to be careful about what we're calling revival today. We should all be praying for revival in our own hearts and in the hearts of our nation, in the hearts of the church. But we have to be careful that we're not using unbiblical terms to describe something that's going on in an organization that, by the way, has gone on before, and it seems to be planned. But there's going to be huge numbers of conversions. And guess what? Satan is going to go after believers. He's going to persecute them viciously during that same period. And you know what's going to happen to many of the believers that are converted? They're going to be killed. They're going to be executed because of their faith. And you say, well, what happens to those who die during this tribulation period? They've come to faith after the church is gone. The only people left in the world is unbelievers. These people believe the gospel, and then they're killed because of their belief during this tribulation period. Well, Revelation 14, verses 13 and 14 tells us, it says in verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Speaking of these tribulation saints, verse 13, he says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Speaking of all those who are martyred, slaughtered by Satan and his forces during this time period. He says, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, listen, that they may rest from their labors. They may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Rest will come to the persecuted believers in the time of the tribulation. Rest will come to them, and they will enter into the presence of the Lord. The next event at the end of the tribulation is just this, the coming of the Lord in glory. This is what we're talking about. He comes in glory. He establishes, after the seven-year tribulation, his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. Revelation 20 says he comes down to this world. He establishes this kingdom for a thousand years. And the kingdom will have in it his people who are his agents. We're agents of the king during this millennial time. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He rules with a, a rod of iron, the Bible says, during that time. He subdues the entire earth. Nations come to Jerusalem to worship him. This is the time of peace, the time of righteousness covering the entire world this thousand years. And the agents who work with him, under him, are his glorified saints who come back and reign and rule with him. And they help and they apply his rule across the world. This is our future as believers. And as his kingdom begins, all his enemies are destroyed. It says that Satan is bound for a thousand years. While all this goodness is happening on earth, Satan is bound for a thousand years along with all of his demons. And the, rule, the Lord rules in righteousness. And at the end of that thousand year period, God allows a rebellion of some. But the rebellion is immediately squashed. And that thousand-year period ends, and justice has come back to reign in this world. And after that, Revelation 21 and 22, the Lord literally, it says, dissolves the universe as we know it. Everything that he created, it's gone. And it says that he creates a new heaven and a new earth where we will have this eternal rest, this relief from everything that we have here on earth I mean, we get a little taste of it here 
as we live in the church, right? We, we get a little taste of heaven. But it pales in comparison to what will actually be there. This rest is defined as being forever in the presence of the Lord, forever in his, a place where there's no sin, there's no iniquity, there's no transgression, there's no evildoer. Pure righteousness, pure holiness, pure joy, pure peace, pure love. All that will give us pure rest. And for all of eternity, Now, you could look at that and go, well, how can he do that if he's a just God? How can he give some eternal damnation in hell and then you're telling me this is what we have as believers? That doesn't really sound fair. How can he do this? Well, I take you back to verse 6. God considers it just. Not just to carry out his vengeance, not just to afflict those who afflict the believers, but also, it says, to grant relief to those. It's God's justice. Yeah, we're saved by faith, or by grace through faith. We understand that. But it's also just that we are saved. God is doing the right thing. He's doing the right thing. Just thing in saving our eternal souls. And you say, well, I thought we weren't deserving. We're not. And what makes it just is that the Lord Jesus Christ, as God's gift to us, he has already paid in full our penalty. Completely. For the sins of his people. He's... He, carte blanche, right across everything. There's not anything we can add to our salvation. You know, the other day I went to Costco and I had one of those uh, coupon things that they give you at the end of the year, whatever, you know, a couple hundred bucks. You say, well, you must spend a lot of Costco. Well, I do. But anyway, you know, they give you some money back for a certain percentage. And so I had this coupon and I got up to the thing and I thought, cool, I'll see if this adds up. I probably won't have to pay anything. This is great. Well, Obviously, I had more in my cart than I thought. So my balance was 80 bucks. And I thought, oh, man. You know, because I was thinking I would get a free ride. See, God doesn't do that. You're not going to get to the gates of heaven and say, yeah, I know Jesus paid for some of your sins, but you know what? You had some real, real doozies down there. You know, you need to own up your part. No. No, it's a free gift. Everything is completely paid We think of it as, you know, you go on a vacation and you go to some of these, these places and they, 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 they label themselves as what? All-inclusive, right? And you know what? To be honest, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. You got to read the fine print. You get to some of those places, well, oh, I thought that, well, no, if you, if you want to eat the good food, you got to sell out the money. Hmm. God's not going to do that to us because his payment was received by God. It's already done. It's already validated because he rose from the dead. Because God was satisfied. He was propitiated. That's the satisfied heart of God in the sacrifice of his son. He has to. It's the only right thing to do. It's the only just thing to do to give relief, to give rest eternally to those whom Christ has purchased. We celebrate the justice of God in the punishment of sinners. Right? Yeah, they'll get theirs. You just wait. I mean, that's a very powerful reality. But on the other hand, we have to remember, what does, what does 1 John say? 1 John tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and gracious. Does it say that? No. It says what? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He must punish sinners, but he must reward the saints. 
That's the good news of the gospel. See, I don't know what's going on in your heart right now, but salvation, Paul says in Romans 3, doesn't come by works of the law. It doesn't come by what you do. You know, some people say, well, what's the difference between religion and Christianity? You've heard me say this a million times. It's two words. If you want to know what a religion is about, if you want to go join a world religion, whatever religion it is, religion is just man's attempt, man's sinful attempt to reach out to a holy God. And so when you go and you go to a religious belief center, what do they do? They give you a piece of paper and they say, here, do these things and you'll be one of us. It's all based on that word. It's all based on D-O, what you do. I'm here to tell you it doesn't matter what you do. You could do and do and do till the cows come home. God is not going to look at all you're doing and go, oh, finally, you did it. No. That doesn't work that way. You can feed the homeless. You can come to church. You can get baptized. You can take communion. You can go visit the Rajmaj, whatever. You know, do your little trip of holiness somewhere in the world. No, the Bible says it doesn't come by what you do. The difference with Christianity is the word D-O-N-E. We don't believe in what we do saves us. We believe what was done for us on the cross through the work of Christ, what we're celebrating here this morning, that's what will affect salvation of your eternal soul. By committing yourself to that. Don't commit yourself to a church. Don't commit yourself to some person who stands up in front of you and says, oh, believe in me. Commit yourself to the one who died for you. Commit yourself to the one who not only died for you, but was risen from the dead. Proving time and time again that this is a real thing. This isn't some fanciful Bible story that somebody thought up. I mean, people have died. They've given their own lives for the message of the word of God. To preserve it, to keep it. Dave, has, Dave Bowen has shared with us many times the martyrs who've gone on before us. I mean, you know, I don't know if I'd be die, willing to die for something that was fake. Something that I just believed on a whim. No, I want to know it's real. And this salvation we speak of is real. And this is what God wants for you. He wants you to come into this eternal rest. You do that by admitting your need of a Savior. You do that by acknowledging Christ's work on the cross. You do that by admitting simply, you know what, I can't do this on my own. And yeah, you know what? It hurts your pride a little bit. That's the idea. That's the point. Trust me, if there was any other way to get to heaven, a lot of people would have figured it out by now. There isn't. By the lips of our Lord and Savior himself, he says, I am the way. The one and only way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. The only way you'll ever get to the Father is to be perfect, as he is perfect. Well, who could do that? Nobody. That's the whole point. We can't do it on our own. We need to cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Maybe you don't understand all the details of church. That's, that's irrelevant. That's not important. We're not here to push a church on you. We're here to point you to a Savior who loved you so much that he gave up his own life and died and rose on the third day as proof of who he was. And when you cry out to him from the brokenness of your own heart, recognizing that, yeah, I've done a lot of things that have been an affront to God. I mean, maybe you're not, you know, Joe the axe murderer or something like that. But you know what? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever used God's name in vain? 
Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours irrespective of its value? Have you ever had a lustful thought in your mind? All those are sins before a holy God. And God is not up there counting each one. He just, it just takes one to make you unholy in his sight. And we've all done at least one. And so we desperately need his grace. And you notice here at the end, in closing here, it says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That word marveled. I mean, people were constantly marveling at Jesus. They marveled at what he said. They marveled at what he did. He had thousands of people following him. They marveled about him in a way that indicated that they were sure that there was something more than just this guy from Galilee. And think about it. We will marvel at him forever when his glory is completely unveiled to us. And it says that his glory will shine through us. He is in us, literally says. And that's why we celebrate. That's why we celebrate communion. That's why we have this juice. We have this cracker. This represents a sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. This isn't holy bread. This isn't holy wine. It's not even wine. It's grape juice. Depending on how long it's sitting in the refrigerator, it might be wine by now, but I don't think so. <laughs> We've had that in the past too. But, but these are just elements. These are symbols, right? They're a symbol of, of Christ's body, the bread. And he had a meeting with his disciples on the last night in which he had with them, in which he was betrayed, and he held the cracker up, and he broke the bread. And he said, eat this in remembrance of me until I come back. Don't ever forget what I did for you is the, the meaning. And he also took the cup that had some wine in it, and he blessed it as the cup of the new covenant. And he said, this is my blood. This is, this is what represents my blood. Now, we don't worship the blood of Jesus. Jesus had human blood, just like you and I, because <laughs> he had a human body. In some denominations, they worship the blood of Jesus. No, we don't worship the blood of Jesus. It was human blood. But the Bible does say because he shed his blood, because what? Life is in the blood. If you don't have any blood in you, guess what? You're dead, right? I mean, you, you can't live without blood. So when Jesus gave up his blood, he gave up his life. And it speaks of the full atonement. And the Bible speaks of the blood as covering our sins. All the way back from the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, you can remember, what did they do? They ran in the woods and got some fig leaves and tried to hide from God, right? I mean, how stupid was that? I mean, God created the garden. He knew where they were. He could see. He knows everything. And they're trying to hide from him behind these stupid little fig leaves. And God says, that's not going to work. And he provided skins. Obviously, an animal was slain. Blood was shed. And he provided a garment for them to clothe them. And he's done that through Christ for us. And so when we celebrate communion here, this is a time for those who have put their faith, their trust in Christ. It's okay, if, you, if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ and you're not a Christian, just don't partake of this. Nobody's, we're not offended. Matter of fact, that's the right thing to do. But it's never too late for you to cry out to God. It's never too late to say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. You can become a Christian right now. It's not a process that happens. It happens in a moment in time when you're willing to yield your life to Christ and to his Father who loved you and gave his Son for you. And you acknowledge your sinfulness before a holy God and you ask him to forgive your sins, then you will become a believer in Christ. You will become a follower of Christ. He will give you the Holy Spirit within you. And you will have a desire to live for him. But if you're not there yet, we understand that. Just pass the elements by. So let's pray and I'm going to ask the worship team to come. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we got through the hard part of the judgment of God and the wrath of God, and, and Lord, only to find ourselves ending on the rest of God, the deliverance of God, the relief that you have given us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your children. For all those who put their faith or trust in Christ, we don't, we don't have to worry about the wrath of God. We don't have to worry about being condemned by the judge, the Savior, the Lord who will come as judge. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For those who have trusted Christ, for those who have obediently yielded and obeyed the gospel. Who've walked away from their own agenda and trust you for your agenda for their lives. You created us, you know what's best for us. And Lord, we pray for each heart, each soul that's represented here today, that if there's even one that would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you just want more answers. Maybe you have more questions. Feel free to talk to someone after the service. We'd love to talk to you about this. For us believers, Lord, I pray that we would enter this time in a point of reflection, a point of examination of our own hearts, And Lord, as we sing a couple songs to you, as the elements are passed out, Lord, that you would um, show us if there's anything within our heart, any unconfessed sin, anything that might be running interference in our spiritual lives, Lord, that we would confess that, that we would thank you for your forgiveness in Christ, that we'd move on. If there's forgiveness that's needed, Lord, I pray that that would even be carried out, Lord. We pray that you would... Just make this time a very special time for us as believers here today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.